Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Good evening or good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are and what time it is. So, for this episode, we are going to share an article from the May-June 2019 California Freemason magazine. And it's called, Of Their Own Free Will and Accord, Women and Freemasonry. This is written by Alan L. Castellew, the Grand Secretary of the Grand Lodge of California. And the subtitle of it is, A Brief History of Women in the World's First and Largest Fraternity. Removing a loose brick in the wall separating the family library from the parlor, Elizabeth St. Ledger had a full view of what was transpiring in the next room. Her curiosity stirred. Until then, she'd never witnessed a meeting of her father's Masonic Lodge. She was enthralled. But as the proceedings wound down, Elizabeth began to fear she would be detected. She bolted from the library and ran into the butler, who, unbeknownst to her, was the tyler of the lodge. She screamed and fainted. The butler summoned her father, realizing his daughter had witnessed their secret work. Lord Dornerail determined that the best remedy was to pass her through the ceremony she had just witnessed, ensuring her discretion by the obligation that would bind her. This is the story of the Lady Freemason, receiving the degrees of masonry in Cork, Ireland in the early 1700s, several years before the Premier Grand Lodge was formed in London. It is but one of several stories of incidental female masons, women secreting themselves in clocks and closets to witness the mysteries of masonry, only to be discovered and then initiated by the reluctant master. But the history of women in Freemasonry is much deeper and much richer than these amusing tales suggest. Operative Masonry Women appear in the fraternity's history from its earliest operative days. While membership in the building trades of the Middle Ages was typically male, both men and women worked together on certain building sites, and in some instances, men apprenticed under female masters. In The Legend of Good Women, Medieval Women in Towns and Cities, German professor Erika Wietz sheds light on the prevalence of women builders in the Middle Ages. Early rulings restricted female guild membership to wives and widows, and sometimes limited their work to lighter duties. But sources also suggest that women were employed in the hard physical work, including mortar mixing, roof making, and glazing. An early 16th century woodcut depicts a man and woman lifting a large stone, completing a chapel roof. Witz explains that by the late Middle Ages, independent women were allowed membership in building trades in Central Europe, a practice that spread as economic and demographic conditions changed. The records of the Worshipful Company of Masons in London list numerous women on the rolls of apprenticeships in the late 1600s and early 1700s. Many were widows, continuing a husband's trade or supervising a minor son, but not all. For example, the rolls of 1714 include Mary Bannister, who was neither the widow nor daughter of a mason. Her father was a baker, and she was not married. Wives and widows were offered discounted membership fees, however. Mary paid the company five shillings for a seven-year apprenticeship, the same as men. Researchers point to the language in surviving manuscripts of the medieval trade guilds, including the Regius poem and other old charges, which are esteemed by masons, as a record of the evolution of the craft. 
Some Grand Lodges consider them part of Masonic law today. The Regius poem describes the scholar Euclid who ordered that whoever was a better worker should teach even the slowest learner to become perfect in the respectable craft. So each one should teach the other and love one another like sister and brother. The Minutes of the First Lodge in Edinburgh uses the terms he and she when referring to operative masons. Masculine Masonry Some researchers use the above examples as evidence of mixed gender in the medieval building trades, while others dispute the idea. There are also claims that speculative lodges of men and women, called androgynous lodges, were operating in London in the early 18th century, but here too evidence is scant. Notwithstanding these debates, there is no doubt that the masculine masonry was formalized in 1723 when the London Grand Lodge adopted Anderson's constitutions. It reads, The persons admitted members of a lodge must be good and true men, freeborn and of mature and discreet age, no bondsmen, no women, no immoral or scandalous men, but of good report. It could not be clearer this new Grand Lodge was for men only. The new constitutions provided lodges with the structure, order, and consistency lacking in the crude craft of speculative masonry, and then blooming in the British Isles, and masculine Freemasonry spread around the globe like wildfire. By the mid-20th century, membership reached an all-time high, tens of thousands of lodges and millions of Freemasons, exclusively male. This masculine tradition was passed faithfully from one continent to the other and one generation to the next. In many cases, without any knowledge that women were practicing in the same fraternal society all the while, albeit in smaller numbers. Lodges of Adoption As lodges formed in France in the 1730s, the Grand Lodge there wrestled with how to address the interest by women in their masculine craft. Androgynous lodges already existed in Paris, and other lodges performed separate degrees for women. By the 1740s, in answer to this interest, the Grand Lodge established Lodges of Adoption, a separate system of degrees for women called the adoptive rite. Apparently, there were several variations of the adoptive rite. The Perfect Mason, published in 1744, describes three degrees. According to Michael Segal, former Grand Chancellor of the Grand Lodge of France, the primitive rite had four degrees, apprentice, companion, mistress, and perfect mistress. The French rite, the most prevalent, had five degrees, adding elect sublime Scottish lady to the former. And there was also a 10-degree rite, which Segal said was seldom worked and copying in part the Scottish rite degrees. French masons debated the propriety of the adoptive rite. Some men disfavored the practice altogether. But, according to Albert Mackey, these androgynous lodges became so numerous and so popular that a persistence in opposition would have evidently been impolitic if it did not actually threaten to be fatal to the interests and permanence of the Masonic institution. The adoptive rite flourished in France and eventually made its way to America. One of the first known adoptive lodges in America was St. Anne's Lodge in Boston. One of its founders, Hannah Crocker, authored a series of letters on Freemasonry, published in 1850 under the pen name A Lady of Boston. In her first letter, dated September 7, 1810, Crocker wrote, I had the honor some years ago to preside as mistress of a lodge consisting of females only. We held a regular lodge founded on the original principles of true ancient masonry so far as was consistent for the female character. For Crocker, the aim of Freemasonry was to elevate the human mind, and she believed masonry was a stimulus for the feminine consciousness at a time when there were few inducements for it. Describing the times, she wrote, If women could even read and badly write their name, it was thought enough for them. But the aspiring female mind could no longer bear a cramp to genius. 
On Freemasonry, she concluded, I have reason to believe this institution gave the first rise to female education in this town, and our sex a relish for improving the mind. She was not alone in her thinking. Albert Pike, one of the most reverenced Masons in Masonic history, wrote, Our mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters cannot, it is true, be admitted to share with us the grand mysteries of Freemasonry, but there is no substantial reason why there should not also be a Masonry for them, which may not merely enable them to make themselves known to Masons, but by means of which, acting in concert through the tie of association and mutual obligation, they may cooperate in the great labors of Masonry by assisting in and, in some respects, directing their charities and toiling in the cause of human progress. By the early 19th century, Masons in a number of states were writing and performing female degrees, and Pike himself is credited with translating a form of the adoptive rite into English. Unlike other forms then practiced, this variation was very similar to the masculine lodges of his time, down to the details of the aprons the sisters wore. Most female degrees at the time were conferred upon the wives, daughters, and widows of Masons, but Pike seems to have performed the degrees for at least one person with no Masonic relation. In 1866, 18-year-old sculptor Vinnie Ream Hoxie was selected by the U.S. Congress to create a statue of Abraham Lincoln, making her the youngest artist and the first woman to receive such a commission. She became a prominent figure in Washington, D.C., and met and befriended Pike, who was living there. At some point, Hoxie was made a Mason, and a few years after completing the Lincoln statue, she completed one of Pike. In Haunted Chambers, The Lives of Early Women Freemasons, Karen Kidd describes Hoxie's enthusiastic support of the adoptive right. She writes, Vinnie took on Pike's project of establishing an American adoptive right, as he imagined it, with as much energy as ever she committed to her art. She soon was quoted in the press as pointing out the roots of the American right in the French right of adoption. The attention Hoxie drew was not always positive. In fact, she faced significant opposition by male American Masons. Her and Pike's hopes to expand the adoptive right in Washington, D.C. were never fully realized, perhaps in part because of this negative sentiment, or perhaps because there was a stronger adoptive brand already developing in the United States. Despite facing criticism of his own, Rob Morris, a past Grandmaster of Kentucky, was a steadfast advocate of the adoptive right in America, even publishing a magazine titled The Adopted Mason. By 1855, Morris created the supreme constellation of the American adoptive rite, a new form of Freemasonry that evolved into the Order of the Eastern Star, or OES. OES was very successful and ultimately grew to more than 500,000 members, which, at its apex, was the largest mixed fraternal organization in the world. This might explain why other forms of mixed and feminine masonry have not been as prevalent in the United States as elsewhere in the world. Except for the success and growth of OES, the popularity of the adoptive right in the United States and around the world waned in the late 19th century. Men and women in adoptive lodges were no longer content to practice a different right. They longed to partake in the same ceremonies as the masculine lodges. In France, they were about to. Mixed Masonry Maria de Reims was initiated into Le Libres Pensur Lodge in Paris in 1882 using the same ritual the men had been using for more than 150 years. George Martin, a doctor and politician, was among the brothers present for the historic occasion. One of the first recorded instances of a woman's initiation into a regular lodge of Masons. It's not surprising that de Rames, who was active in France's women's rights movement and nascent human rights organization, claimed the distinction. Her initiation met with such acrimony that she eventually withdrew from the lodge, but she was not deterred. 
She and Martin worked together to found the first Grand Lodge of mixed masonry a decade later, the Scottish Symbolic Grand Lodge, Human Right, which would soon become the International Order of Mixed Freemasonry, Human Right. Le Detroit Humane in French, or LDH. Today, LDH operates lodges in more than 40 countries on each of the five main continents. In the United States, the first of these was established in Pennsylvania in 1903 under the leadership of French Freemason Francois Guizot, a newspaper editor. A few years later, he led the creation of a subsidiary Grand Lodge called the American Federation, LDH, which now has lodges in more than 20 states, including several lodges in California. Meanwhile, England's first LDH Lodge was founded by Annie Besant, a leader in the women's rights movement in the United Kingdom. Besant and a number of friends received their Masonic degrees from LDH in Paris in 1902 and returned to London to establish England's first Lodge of Mixed Masonry the same year. Besant became the Grand Commander of a subsidiary LDH Grand Lodge, and during her tenure, English Mixed Masonry developed Mark Mason's Lodges, the Holy Royal Arch, and a past Master's degree aligning their additional bodies as the masculine Grand Lodge in England had and differentiating it from their French counterparts. A splinter Grand Lodge, which also practiced mixed masonry, was created in 1908, the Honorable Fraternity of Ancient Freemasonry, HFAF. As the 20th century dawned, men and women were practicing Freemasonry together, in the same lodges, using its ancient rituals and ceremonies. Soon, though, there would be a great war and women would play an increased leadership role in the world and in the Lodge. Feminine Masonry Great Britain entered World War I in August of 1914, eventually conscripting the majority of all fit men ages 18 to 51. Women filled the jobs the men had left, and in the case of the Mixed Grand Lodge, HFAF, women also filled the Lodges. Despite the lack of male applicants during the war, HFAF still attracted new members under its transformative female grandmaster, Marion Halsey. Eighty-eight women, mostly single women and women without children, were initiated during the war years, compared to just twelve men. Soon, most everyone in the lodge was female. When the war ended, the men who survived returned home and returned to lodge. About the same time, HFAF requested formal recognition from the United Grand Lodge of England, but it was not granted. Halsey and her leadership team realized they were destined to stand on their own as women. Between 1919 and 1925, HFAF initiated 253 women and just two men. By 1935, the last male member died and pure feminine masonry was born. In 1958, its golden anniversary, HFAF added Order of Women Freemasons to its name. Today, the order has more than 6,000 members in the United Kingdom and other parts of the world. Across the Channel, French Freemasons were on a similar path. In 1935, the Grand Lodge of France granted autonomy to a number of adopted lodges to form a woman's Grand Lodge in France. World War II interrupted their plans, but eventually in 1952, the Women's Grand Lodge of France was formed. This new Grand Lodge cast aside the adoptive rite, preferring to work in the ancient and accepted Scottish rite. Soon, feminine lodges were created throughout France and other parts of Europe, including Belgium. Across the Atlantic, in Mexico, the first women's lodges were founded in the late 19th century, dissolved, and returned in other forms. These original efforts by women were followed in 1958 by the United Women's Grand Lodge, Alma Mexicana, which remains one of the largest feminine Grand Lodges today, with 87 lodges in 18 Mexican states and the Federal District. 
Here in California, in 2017, three Los Angeles lodges associated with Alma Mexicana formed the Women's Grand Lodge of California, complementing the French and Belgian feminine lodges already established in the state. Indeed, feminine masonry today only seems to be growing. In 2008, French Grandmaster Yvette Nicholas articulated her view on its purpose. To be a woman's Grand Lodge does not mean withdrawal nor unwillingness to share Masonic work with men. This choice meets the need to find a specific time, space unit for thought and expression, allowing women to fully engage with their feminine identity and responsibility as women in the world. Surely there are men who can relate. Masculine Grand Lodges around the world are learning more about the various distinctions created over the centuries regarding gender in Freemasonry. In fact, the world's premier Grand Lodge is leading the way. Modern English View Considered the mother Grand Lodge of the world, the United Grand Lodge of England, UGLE, draws the constant attention of the fraternity. Masculine Grand Lodges, and perhaps mixed and feminine ones too, regard UGLE actions and practices as the original, leading form of masonry. Twenty years ago, on the threshold of the 21st century, the premier Grand Lodge formally addressed gender. In a statement on March 10, 1999, UGLE explained the existence of feminine and mixed masonry in England and informed their members that they were free to explain to non-masons if asked that Freemasonry is not confined to men. Even though UGLE does not admit women, that is, unless the woman was a man when initiated. Indeed, UGLE later acknowledged that gender is not always a permanent status. On July 17, 2018, UGLE published a policy stating that a person who has undergone gender reassignment and becomes a man may apply for membership in their lodges. Further, a mason who, after initiation, becomes a woman is entitled to maintain her active membership in the lodge. The instructions to lodges include a dress code for women at meetings. It's impossible to know how the fraternity's ideas about gender distinctions while practicing Freemasonry will evolve in the future. From the outset of Freemasonry, both men and women have participated in its mysteries and advanced its aims. In all parts of the globe, including the state of California, there exist today three streams of Freemasonry distinguished by gender, masculine masonry for men only, feminine masonry for women only, and mixed masonry for men and women together. As long as the human mind finds happiness in experiencing and learning from Freemasonry's initiatic rites and rituals in a gender-specific environment, the three streams are likely to continue. While countless questions remain for the future of gender and Freemasonry, this much is certain. Today, a woman doesn't have to peek through loose bricks or hide in a cabinet to become a Mason. Women and men alike can knock directly at the door of Freemasonry of their own free will and accord. So this is the second article from the May-June 2019 California Freemason magazine that we're going to cover, and this is called A Voice During the Women's Movement, The Order of the Eastern Star, by Nancy Stearns Theis, Ph.D. The years leading up to 1851, when Rob Morris penned the degrees of the Order of the Eastern Star, or OES, were a pivotal time for women's rights. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was organizing the first Women's Rights Convention in July 1848 and produced the Declaration of Sentiments. The opening of the American frontier provided new land and resources for exploitation and profit, and the railroad and steamboats began distributing goods far and wide. As manufactured goods started to supplant handmade and homespun items, women were afforded some leisure time, once a foreign concept, particularly for women in rural and frontier areas. 
women were also involved in anti-slavery groups and abolitionists, such as Frederick Douglass, supported women's rights. And although both movements gained momentum and support, their issues were not the same and required different directions. Throughout his formative years, Morris was sympathetic to women and their contributions to society. He witnessed his own mother's hard work in raising a family without support when she separated from Morris's father. She remarried in later years, though. His mother valued education and made sure her children, Rob, Charlotte, and John, were educated. As a young man of 18, Morris left his Taunton, Massachusetts home to explore and experience the new American frontier. He taught at an academy near Memphis and was inducted into Freemasonry at Gathright Lodge No. 33 in Oxford, Mississippi on March 5, 1846. This was to become a milestone in his life that changed his career and interest. He quit his teaching job and started selling magazine and newspaper subscriptions across Mississippi and Tennessee, as well as giving lectures on Freemasonry at churches and lodges. An Adoptive Rite As he learned more about Masonry, Morris saw the introduction of women into Masonic organizations as a way to improve it. Morris had visited many Masonic lodges and found that often they were in disrepair and members were not adhering closely to Masonic rituals. He thought women would help clean up lodges and bring a higher standard of protocol. In addition, Freemasons inspire philanthropy, and Morris felt women were more empathetic than men to the causes of widows and destitute children. Perhaps the most important part of Morris's vision for the Eastern Star was not just to strengthen lodges, but to broaden the opportunities for women in the workforce. As he stated, And there is another practical result of the Eastern Star movement, the credit of which I am in no wise inclined to give to others. This is the broader opening that is offered to females for self-support. The deadly needle, the unwomanly washtub, the unwholesome country school, the sinewy, wearying kitchen are not now the only fields on which women, old and young, who are wrestling with the perplexities of human life can win bread. Thousands and tens of thousands of places, cleanly, womanly, easy, and fairly profitable, have been opened to them since the story of the five heroines of the Eastern Star was first disseminated in 1850. In almost every post office and courthouse throughout the lands, in a great number of banks and libraries, at the desks of cashiers and mercantile houses, behind counters, but the catalog need not be extended. Long as it is, it is daily lengthening, and every year the salaries of women are brought more nearly to those of men, as it is found that they are equally accurate and expert in business, and that the defalcations, forgeries, and general rascalities with which our morning papers are defiled are commonly the work of men rarely of women. Jean McKee Keniston, 1917. And while Morris was by no means the first to introduce adoptive masonry for women, he may well have been one of the most successful. The influence of female masonry and various degrees that had been established before Morris's development of the Eastern Star degrees certainly influenced Morris, but the manner and style is distinctly original and from Morris's hand. According to his biographer, Dr. Thomas R. Austin, in A Well-Spent Life, 1876, one thing is known to all readers of Masonic literature in America, that numerous degrees in which both sexes are admitted were in use among us long before Dr. Morris's day. The heroine of Jericho, the secret monitor, the mason's daughter, the good Samaritan, the ark and the dove, and others. Dr. Morris merely used his privilege as a Masonic teacher to invent and put into use other degrees of the same class, but far superior in merit. A Movement for the Time Morris was intuitive for the times, and his efforts reflected the major initiatives of the objectives of the 1848 Declaration of Sentiments. 
Morris's vision for the Order of the Eastern Star allowed, in a conservative fashion, for women to belong to an organization with traditional and respected history, while giving them a voice. Women could use the local Masonic Lodge to socialize, organize, and provide charity for the community outside of their church and home, a great asset particularly in more isolated rural areas. The OES also connected women to the larger framework of a Masonic fraternity that had already established itself within a national and international network. On May 4, 1851, Rob wrote his wife Charlotte from Trenton, Tennessee in Gibson County. In this letter, he mentioned that he conferred degrees on more than 50 ladies and would do the same for her when he returned home. Of course, Morris's enthusiasm for the Order of the Eastern Star was met with resistance by those who felt women had no place in masonry, and he was often dubbed the Petticoat Mason. Morris stated, Letters were written to me, some signed, some anonymous, warning me that I was periling my own Masonic connections in the advocacy of this scheme. But these threats were of no avail. The Order of the Eastern Star was the first membership organization in the United States that gave women a voice on a national scale. This was an extraordinary accomplishment given the distance separating the frontier communities from the more populated areas in the United States. The OES gave women a platform of visibility at a time when women had little opportunity in business, government, and education. It embodied the power of women as a force to make positive changes in their lives specifically, and for women generally. It stood as a beacon for women to get involved locally as well as nationally and internationally to improve society. So, a little note about the author, Nancy Stearns Theis, Ph.D., grew up in LaGrange, not far from the Morris home. She is the executive director of the Oldham County Historical Society. Her book, A Place in the Lodge, Dr. Rob Morris, Freemasonry and the Order of the Eastern Star, 2018, is available from Westphalia Press. And the last couple things we're going to finish up with are also from the May-June 2019 California Freemason magazine. And uh, this one here is called In California and Beyond. And so if you're looking to do a little research, this is going to list out some of the women's lodges. Similar to masculine Freemasonry, feminine and mixed orders are founded on the teachings and traditions of ancient Freemasonry. While each may function separately from their masculine counterpart, all seek a common goal to provide aid and relief to their communities and to seek solidarity and truth. Le Droit Humane International is a mixed order with lodges in California. Their website is comasonic.org. And it says, translated to the human right in English, members of Le Droit Humane International search for truth and seek to promote the progress of individual worth without the imposition of dogma or requiring the abandonment of cultural or religious ideas. The next one is the Honorable Fraternity of Ancient Freemasons, which is a feminine order, hfaf.org. Based in London, the Honorable Fraternity of Ancient Freemasons seeks to promote friendship, inspiration, and empowerment in its members and provide aid and charity to their communities. Next, we have the Grand Orient of France, which is a mixed order with a lodge in San Francisco. GODF.org is the website. With over 50,000 members and 1,200 lodges, the Grand Orient of France permits masculine and mixed lodges. Then there's the Women's Grand Lodge of France, which is a feminine order, GLFF.org. Faithful to the founding principles of universal Freemasonry, the mission of the Grand Lodge Féminine de France is the constant and unlimited search for truth and justice in order to contribute to the perfection of humanity. We next have the Women's Grand Lodge of California, 
Feminine Order, headquartered at Aletheia Lodge in Los Angeles, WFMLA.com. Chartered by the Women's Grand Lodge of Belgium, the mission of the Women's Grand Lodge of California is to foster personal growth and to serve and provide aid to their families, communities, and the world. We next have the George Washington Union Grand Lodge, a mixed order with lodges in San Francisco and Marin. And it's georgewashingtonunion.org, the website. With lodges in North America, GWU was established from the Grand Orient of France in 2002. In conferring the degrees of masonry, GWU requires two written papers from each candidate before advancement to a higher degree. And the last one is the Women's Grand Lodge of Belgium, a feminine order with a lodge in Los Angeles. And the website is glfb-vglb.be. With 41 active lodges in Belgium, the Women's Grand Lodge of Belgium reflects universal Freemasonry, a strong commitment to all human rights, and a freedom of conscience and a rejection of discrimination. And the last thing in here in the magazine, which is really interesting, but it doesn't give you much information, it's called Women of Freemasonry. Meet four women who are leading and building feminine and mixed lodges today. So I'll just introduce you to the people. So the first of the four is Teresita Arechiga, who is the Grand Master of the Women's Grand Lodge of California in Los Angeles. Next is Maurice Fauville, Grand Master of the Women's Grand Lodge of Belgium, out of Brussels, Belgium. And then Anne-Marie Moody, the Grand Commander, the International Order of Freemasonry for Men and Women, Le Droit Humane American Federation, out of Fort Washington, Maryland. And last is Lourdes P. Elias, the Honorable Fraternity of Ancient Freemasons, HFAF America Lodge, out of Washington, D.C. And so I'll post the links to each of these articles as well. Very interesting stuff. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.